so uh, so the way I kind of do this is uh, I like to do it sitting down because it, I don't know it just feels like a Bible study when I used to I'm a convert y'all know and so I used to go to Bible studies and we'd all just sit in a group uh, it makes it a little more relaxed so I, I kind of ask questions and what you'll get here is um, this is kind of how I prepare for a homily because when I do it, it turns into my own personal Bible study. Um, particularly, you know, and I'm always doing this Sunday. Like we, uh, we're always preaching pretty much on Sunday because we have so many masses. We have deacons that will preach every now and then, but they can't cover them all. So we end up always having to preach, um, and uh, which is good. But you know, you, every week you're preparing, so. So we'll start by, I think a good way to start is just to read the first reading, which is very short. Uh, and then we're going to jump to the gospel after that. So whoever would like to um, volunteer in reading that, somebody that would. Okay. You can use your phone or you can use, it looks like y'all have it printed in there, however y'all. This is, yeah, yeah. I was hoping you weren't doing the right one because that's not the one I'm prepared for. 29. Uh, and right, we really kind of go right into that with this cryptic figure. 
So let's take a look at this guy and see, or this person, or whoever this is, right? And kind of uh, uh, ask some questions um, about this. So we'll start with the first line. The Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity. Remember one scholar I was reading recently said, that's a, well, that's it's kind of almost a disturbing verse. So what do you think? How are we supposed to take that? The Lord was pleased to crush him in infirmity. Any thoughts on that? Um, obviously, you can read it the wrong way, but what do you think it meant when, when the author, when it was Isaiah, well, different scholars say it's Isaiah number three or whatever, who wrote this, I believe it was actually Isaiah, that he said the Lord was pleased. What do you think he meant by that? Any thoughts? One scholar said, you know, it, it sounds like it, you can take it the wrong way, like masochistically, but really, it's more the Lord's will. Wasn't remember God? We know in His divinity, the Father. We would say, and and Jesus in His divinity, they don't have feelings. So we don't want to see it as as in the sense that He was pleased, like uh, in some sort of odd humanistic way. But He was He willed it. He willed that this mysterious servant would suffer, would be crushed in His suffering in a sense. Um, and so, and there's a sense in which he's willing it for a deeper purpose than, than we can realize. So he goes into the next uh, section, um, and uh, it's, it also says something that is interesting here. It says, if you notice, it says, if, so it, it's kind of a conditional statement, but then it says, he gives his life as an offering for sin. So now, all of a sudden, we've changed a little bit. We've gone from the Lord willing it. Right, God willing it, and then this servant also wills it. You know, it, the question is not whether God's going to make him be crushed, because it sounds at the beginning, you know, it's God's doing this to him. But then it sounds that he himself is going to give himself. So the, there's a there's an added dimension there, a deep dimension. Um, and then you can go forward with that, and we can look at um, what results uh, from the servant's self-offering uh, of himself is that not only is he he's believing that he should do this and he chooses to do this but the act results in fruitfulness fruitfulness right so you have these descendants that are coming from this he, and that he will see his descendants in a long life and that the Lord will use him as a kind of instrument we could say that he is, his will would be accomplished through him. Um, and then something really kind of controversial um, when you think about it um, that also, not to mention the, the fruitfulness, but you're also seeing that his affliction his affliction will be the instrument in a sense of his glory. You know, he says it here. Because his affliction, because of his affliction, not despite of his affliction or not um, you know, after his affliction. But because of his affliction, he shall see the light and fullness of days. And then it says, through his suffering, my servant shall justify. The word justify there would be make righteous or make right and bear their guilt. Another odd thing about this is in the Old Testament, what is the only thing in the Old Testament that is offered to atone for sins. 
It's blood, but from what? Sacrifices. Animals, right. It's an animal. It's always an animal. It's never a person. In fact, the human sacrifice was never, that was forbidden, right? So this is, this is a really cryptic figure. Can you imagine reading this? You're an ancient Israelite thinking, because it sounds like a group of people at first, the servant, and then it's an individual, then it's a group again. You read the entire context. But then also this, he wills the suffering, but yet the Lord crushes him. You know, the Lord is willing it. And then there's fruit that comes out of this. And he's a person apparently, but he's offering himself like the animals are offered. So profound, this is deep, uh, deep thing would have been reading, you know, obviously um, so deep that I think a lot of the Israelites at the time when Jesus came didn't understand uh, the cryptic nature of what this, they couldn't fully interpret it. So with those ideas in mind, let's move to the gospel. Um, yep, sure. Well, the, the affliction would include, you know, like it says, he gives his life as an offering of sin. He shall see his descendants in long life. But because of his affliction, his affliction would include the crucifixion. But it would also include all the persecution that was led up to that. You know, Jesus was resisted by everybody. His disciples betrayed him in the end. The only person that really favored the Lord consistently and supported him is the Blessed Mother. And I think she misunderstood a lot, a lot of that. But every every turn, every pathway he went down by every person that he encountered, um, he was either misunderstood, not properly treated or revered, or he was persecuted, particularly by the religious leaders. So that affliction means that's a big word. That's encompassing really everything of this suffering servant. It's not just then the crucifixion, but it culminates in the crucifixion. But remember all that persecution, all that resistance, what did it lead to? The crucifixion. That's why they crucified him, because of what he taught, the things he said, the things he did. It did not fit what they thought he was supposed to be as Messiah. And remember, that was not just the religious leaders. You know, Peter denied him. All the apostles who would who would be the apostles betrayed him and ran away. So, you know, we try to group it in and just say it was a certain group of religious leaders, but it was all the Jewish people. Plus, the Romans participated in this. Now, they may have done it for a different reason, but it wasn't a good reason. Right? So, maybe Mary Magdalene was faithful. Um, she still didn't fully understand him and the Blessed Mother. Um, but so his affliction is really his whole life. So that, that would, that, that, is that help? Okay. So now we'll jump to the gospel. And don't worry, we'll fill out some more information about the first reading. Um, because I think when you look at the gospel, one way to look at the readings is you can go back from the gospel and look at the first reading. That's another way to do it. So let me read the gospel um, uh, so that we'll kind of start to add in these connections. We'll ask some questions about it. Um, so it's actually a fairly entertaining gospel, I think, because I love the, I, you have to love the disciples. I mean, they're fantastic. Um, so I'll read the gospel. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us 
whatever we ask of you. He replied, what do you wish me to do for you? And they answered him, grant that in your glory we may sit one at your right and the other at your left. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we can. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right or at my left is not mine to give, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant at James and John. Jesus summoned them and said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones make their authority over them felt. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, whoever wishes to be great among you will be your servant. Whoever wishes you to be first among you will be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, I know y'all probably already discussed this, but you know, in all the Old Testament, I'm sorry, uh, weeks of ordinary time on Sunday, the Old Testament reading in many ways prefigures, foreshadows, um, and then is fulfilled in the gospel in really the most profound way. And then the psalm serves as a bridge. So I didn't forget the psalm. We'll go back to that, and I'll mention it. We don't have time to get into all the details about the psalm, but why they use that psalm. And then the other reading, remember in weeks in ordinary time, if you discuss this, it's a semi-continuous reading from a particular book. So it's not directly related to the other readings, but it will have an incidental connection, often providentially, as there is one today, which we'll mention it. But you know, like when you have, um, we're coming up in Advent, you'll see days where all the readings connect. That's the case on feast days and on solemnity. So that just kind of helps you. So the lectionary is uh, wonderfully organized and I think prayerfully organized. There's so many beautiful connections. So first off, any thoughts on <laughs> James and John? Um, why do you think it's significant that it's James and John that come up to Jesus and ask him this? I'm not talking about the crazy thing that they ask, which looking back we can tell why it's crazy, but why, why, why is it significant that it's these two? Does anyone know? What was special about James and John related to Jesus? Well, they were brothers, but as it relates to Jesus specifically, their relationship with Jesus. Well, he, he does call himself that in John, but remember, they were part of the inner three, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. So you, you can see where they're thinking about, okay, we're, we're close to the big man here, so we're going to approach him with this question, right? So in other words, they had that working for them. They, they fought, at least. Um, he was also, I believe, I'm right on this, he was the first they picked. I think he, they were even picked before Peter. So they're thinking about this when they're asking this question. You see the relationship they have with Jesus? You see the way they thought, very human way, 
They're thinking about their encounter with him. They're thinking on a very immediate level. And they had an idea about who he was supposed to be like. Now, he blew away all their expectations, but they didn't know that at this point. And what's funny about this is if you read right before this, what was Jesus talking about right before they do this? It's actually kind of funny. His suffering. <laughs> so while he's about, he's talking about how he's going to have to suffer, the next statement is, hey, uh, we need to talk to you a second about this. We got, we got something we want to ask you. And then I love the question that they ask. You have to, you have to love this question. Um, we'll say it again. <laughs> Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. You got to love that one, don't you? One scholar I listened to said, um, if I ever have students come up to me and say that, I mean, I would never answer that question or I would never fall into that trap, you know. Could, would your kids say, you know, some kids would do that, wouldn't they? Yeah. Maybe when they're younger. I was thinking about my nieces. They would know to never ask that question, you know. Now, they may have had to learn that over time, but, you know, you imagine your kids coming up. You know what's what that's about. So it's almost kind of funny that he even has the conversation with them. But I think Jesus is thinking, ah, teachable moment, teachable moment. They're not getting this. So they're willing to ask me something. Right after I talk about how I'm going to suffer and die, you know, and then they ask me this question. And there's one, and I don't know the text, but, uh, you know, where he, I think it's, this detail is left out in this gospel, but the mother does it, you know, which is you know, even more sad. Now, I know there was a reason why in that culture, but I just think that's funny. Of it. Hey, mom, just, just go up there. You know. Get us in. We, we need to get in with this guy. Okay. So anyway, um, moving forward with this. Um, so Jesus, knowing this is a teaching opportunity, he's willing to hear it out. And let's examine what, uh, what they're asking for. So does somebody want to read specifically, what do they ask for? Read just the, uh, I'll read it. I think I've got it right up here. It says, um, he says this, Grant that in your glory we may sit one on your right and the other on your left. So what do you think they want? If you had to sum it up, somebody want to take a shot at it? Yeah, they want to be, they want to really literally be one and two. Because the right was a sign of, of the, really the right, right-hand man. In the kingdom, that's the way they would have understood that. And the left, what's funny is Peter was a, ahead of them. So they're just kind of pushing Peter aside. So he probably would have been the most mad. You know, when the disciples are mad later, they're like, like dude. And, and Peter was appointed as the leader. So it's really outrageous what they're asking for. But on top of that, uh, they are also asking for to be in his glory. You know, And this is, they know there's something great about this man at this point. That he's more than the Messiah, maybe. And the glory of what David had in the Old Testament, which he, they're thinking of David. This one is even greater. So we got to get in on this, is what they're thinking. So basically what they're thinking is... With a very poor understanding of the Messiah, they're thinking the way we often think. You know, uh, I got to use this in my life for my own good. I mean, we've got something here, and we got to take advantage of it. We have to exalt ourselves. 
and we have to use it to our own advantage, even at the expense of the others. So, of course, we never do this anymore, do we? <laughs> so, Washington, right? right? We actually do it in a much more mischievous way because we, we call ourselves servants, but then it doesn't always work out that way. We all can fall into that, right? So Jesus has to um, clarify for them what they're asking. And then he, of course, responds. And he says, wait a minute. He says, can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So what does Jesus mean specifically about the cup? What do you think he's getting at when he says, drink the cup? His suffering, right. His suffering, particularly his crucifixion. But anything that has to do with being associated with him, but following him. By share, so it's a sharing in his suffering, right? In, in the Old Testament, it talks about the cup of God's wrath, and so we don't want to see it as the Father's man and the Son, in a sense, but that, 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 God, that the Lord permitted him to go through this for a greater good, and really the suffering was the result of the sins of the people that were poured upon him. And so this is a, a deep statement that Jesus is, is saying, first of all, there's this cup I'm going to drink, but then the baptism with which he's baptized, that's also a really powerful metaphor. In the Old Testament, you guys are familiar with the Psalms. I think some of you are in the Psalms class. How are we on time? I don't want to overdo. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm real bad about that. So in the, in the Psalms, a lot of times you'll have um, these, these illusions of somebody is dying, and they'll say the waves are crashing over me, and I'm drowning. And I wasn't going to make it, and then God rescued me. You know, so water in the Old Testament is symbolic of a lot of things. One of the things that's symbolic of is the chaos and the rebellion and the sin of the nations around them. And there was always this sense of the righteous Israelites suffering in that way. And so you'll you'll see water being used that way. Well, we believe, uh, and, and Jesus tells us this basically that when Jesus talks about his baptism, he doesn't mean his baptism like we would. He means his baptism being his death, particularly. So his sorrow and his death and suffering. It's just another way of him talking about his baptism, right? So that's what he basically, it, it means there, you know. Um, and then there's also a nuance there that we'll get to in a moment. He doesn't just mean, when he talks about the cup, particularly, he doesn't just mean uh, something that is, is about his suffering. It actually means something else as well, or it can, it can mean. So, uh, moving forward with this, is the per persecution, his death, um, but also we could say too, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and, and, and add this in, cup also could mean cup of blessing, particularly when it speaks to the Passover meal, right? And so we think of it like this, when we share in Christ's cup, we're called into his sufferings, but what happens as a result of that? resurrection and life because Christ has redeemed suffering. So I'll get more into that in a minute when we talk about redemptive suffering, but there's a, a dual meaning there as there often is because there's such a depth to who the Lord is and what he was doing. Um, so they actually have, back to James and John, no idea what they're asking for. And it's even funnier than this when you think about it because a lot of the fathers in church interpretive tradition saw a deeper meaning even there. Who died on Jesus's right and left? Do you remember? Thieves. 
So they really didn't know what they were asking for. Because we, that's, and that's very important, because Jesus' glory, we forget this, is the cross. It begins with the cross. Because when he's lifted up on the cross, we might see it, a person who's not a, a believer or a person of faith, they might see the cross as, oh, it's just a man dying. But we believe that is God made flesh on the cross to reveal his love to the world and to offer salvation to all people and to overcome all evil and sin through a perfect sacrificial act of love. That is glory. And so the thieves, one of them got it right, didn't he? And then the other, of course, did not, uh, at least in tradition, the way we read it in the scriptures. Um, we don't know the other ever turned. But that was glory in that moment. That wasn't, I don't think, what uh, James and John that we're thinking about, were they? I think they were way off on that. So, but what do we what do we know? They did end up, maybe not not and not literally like the thieves, but they did end up bringing the cup, didn't they? And they shared in the baptism. So, how did that happen? Uh, James, you know, which is martyred in Acts, and then tradition uh, is that John was persecuted badly and exiled. But also, many believe that he, they attempted to murder him by poisoning him. And it didn't... Is that fine? That's, yes, okay. That's an interesting one. Right, so, um, so they, they attempted to, to, to kill them both off. And you know, John ended up surviving, but was persecuted greatly. So they did share in the cup. In fact, and they, I think it would have been hard for them to even imagine this, they even were glad to do it because of Christ's love. In Christ's power. It's hard to believe that they got to that point, uh, but that's definitely that's definitely something that is um, a beautiful a beautiful way in which the Lord uses the worst things in the world to bring about the greatest good, even better than if they had not happened at all. So to sum up, how does Jesus fulfill this suffering servant? Well, he comes surprisingly to offer his suffering as a service to many. Really is a ransom to me. This is the cup of the baptism. But he also calls all his disciples, first the apostles and then us by extension, to share in that same suffering. And this speaks to the fact that, you know, the Old Testament, a collective, right? So the servant represented all of Israel, right? But was also an individual. Well, same thing, the fulfillment. Our Lord is the God man glorified God man and yet who are we his mystical body the great intimacy there it's almost an uncomfortable in intimacy if you think about it you know when Saint Paul persecutes the early Christians before he becomes he's Saul and he becomes Paul Jesus says something very strange he says why do you persecute me he doesn't say why do you persecute my people that's how close he is to us and so it's kind of uncomfortable when we think of sharing in the sufferings but it's glorious when we think of the reward of that. So we're called into that. And that's where we get, um, Catholics are always confused of loving suffering and everything. And yeah, I think the way we talk about it sometimes, um, it can be misunderstood. Um, but we're all called into that. And it really speaks to uh, the doctrine of redemptive suffering. So many of you are familiar with this growing up in the church. Um, and I, I recommend a document. I'm not going to go into this document now. But if you ever really want to read about it, it's free. It's online. It's called Salvific Dolores. 
And it's just an exhortation by John Paul II on redemptive suffering. And it kind of explains how we understand it. Um, and you'll find it far more hopeful than often presented that we do believe it. But this is one of the key verses. So does anyone have a Bible that, where they can look up a verse? This isn't going to be one of your verses on your page. Um, you can look it up at um, Colossians 1.24. Go ahead and read it. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ on behalf of his body, which is the church. Okay, so very powerful statement and very uh, cryptic again. Paul is very deep. Um, what he's getting at really is that not that Christ's death was not efficacious to save all the people of all the world. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that what's missing from Christ's sufferings is our participation. And so he knew he had to participate in it. We, have you ever heard the statement, we love to say this in the church, you can't get to Easter Sunday unless you go through Good Friday, right? And that includes us, right? So we know that. We have to go through those things. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be fun or in any masochistic sense like we enjoy it. But what, what we're basically saying is that Christ has redeemed all suffering. And so he's infused it with meaning and even hope. And he's he's brought it to a place where it can be used for the greatest good. Another thing to remember is we're all priests. It's, I'm an ordained priest, yes. But we forget that we're all members of the common priesthood. So while I'm an ordained priest, I'm also a member of the common priesthood through baptism. And you are as well. So we're all called to be, in a sense, priest and victim. Priest in that we offer ourselves in love for others, even through our suffering. And victim in that we, we share in Christ's suffering, not without hope, in some sort of sick or twisted way, but knowing that God will use even the worst things in our lives for the greatest good, if we let him. So um, other verses where this speaks to this, Paul speaks to this, um, uh, one, one of the verses in Romans 6 where it says, As surely as we share in Christ's suffering, and I'm kind of summarizing, and put to death our sin through his death, which begins in baptism, that's how we're united to him, that we will also share in his resurrection. And then you, if you remember, uh, a chapter later, St. Paul also says that suffering produces character. In other words, we know this too, don't we? We don't like to bring this spiritually into our lives, but we know this is true, don't we? Because no pain, no gain. We know it in a secular sense, right? Any, anything you've done in your life has required sacrifice. It's required grit and hard work. I think one of the hardest things is being a good parent, right? Being a good spouse. I mean, those things are supposed to be hard. Um, and certainly there are, you know, we need help with that. And, 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 it, and it, there are some crosses that are overwhelming to us. But that God can use it for good uh, in our lives. That's the point. And then, you know, but St. Paul does this a lot. Another place he speaks to this is he says this as well. Um, you, you remember this verse. It's quoted a lot. Uh, that these momentary light afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. 
It's almost an uncomfortable verse because he's saying that the afflictions are preparing for us. Kind of almost sounds like the very first verse. That because of his affliction, he shall see the light in fullness. You know? And it's that growth in Christ over time, working at our salvation, not earning God's love, but working it out, as St. Paul says, working out our salvation with fear and trembling through prayer, through service, through sacrifice, and through study as we grow in God's love and in God's grace. Uh, St. Paul also says this. I mean, again, he, he, he's such a great uh, uh, commentator on what Jesus was talking about here. He says that we are carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus. This is in 2 Corinthians. So what? So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. But the more we die in Christ, the more we become people of love and holiness. And when we are people of love, love and holiness, we're like C.S. Lewis said, we are little Christs in that moment. That's how Christ is revealed through his body in this world, this love, and this sacrifice. So it goes back to the, you, many of you guys grew up in the church, right? Um, offer it up, right? That probably wasn't always explained to you when you were little, but I can tell you one thing. You did not hear offer it up in a Baptist church, right? In fact, when I, I remember studying that, that Colossians verse that we read, and we just didn't know what to do with it. We really didn't. And then when I became Catholic, I was like, oh my gosh. Okay, now I know what this means. Now, it's not always fun to think about that. But I, I do think the beauty of redemptive suffering is our world's vision of suffering is medicated, <laughs> insulate yourself from it, deny it, and avoid it at all costs. But the, really, you can't avoid suffering. And there's this great scholar, some of you have read him, Jacques Felipe, and he says, the worst thing about suffering is often the fear of suffering. It's the resistance. It's kind of like if you imagine yourself in a cage and you're trying to fight to get out of that cage and you make it worse by bashing yourself up against the sides of the cage and getting angry. So it's not a, a, a I'm not talk, what I'm not talking about is a, is a kind of self-accepting passivism or a hopelessness, but really a hopeful trust in the Lord that he'll use it for good, even the worst things. In lives, uh, in our lives. So I just gave you a few verses on that. Um, so just to sum up, I know we're over time here, um, but uh, just try to sum up. The, the 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 obviously Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity. That um, you know, it's in interesting too when he says, "I come to give my life as a ransom for many." The word "many," um, many people talk about this. Well, does he mean all people, or does he just mean many people? So there was debate throughout, but the many actually goes back into the Isaiah where it says the same thing, that the servant would offer himself for many. And in that context, if you read Isaiah, it's Isaiah right before this says all, 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 all. So we unequivocally say that Jesus Christ died for all men and all women, all human beings Jesus offered himself for, all people, without a doubt. But we... All have to receive that that gift individually because God's not going to force us to re, to receive it. So we have to receive it by a sharing in ultimately even in, in His sufferings. Um, and then we do that how by being servant. In some cases, many here servant leaders, right, in your uh, businesses or your homes or whatever it is that you do, um, and. 
that is not easy. You know, a lot of times we, in fact, there was a scholar that talked about that. The, uh, the first servant leader, you know, is Jesus Christ. And all of this concept of the servant leader, I love how they try to secularize this, like they invented it. And I'm like, give me a break. This comes from Christianity. This is where this comes from. And, and so the idea of serving your country, serving the common good, that's all Christian. Because you know, pre-Christian times, they didn't think that way. And that's one of the reasons why I think John and James were kind of so bold. It was like, well, everybody does this. Everybody sees leaders, as Jesus says, leadership is an opportunity to get something. And to crush those who tried to get in your way and lord it over them. Now, we all fall into that with our own sin, but at least, you know, we do have a concept of we should know better, you know. Whereas James and John, maybe that's why he was nice to them. When they looked around him, all the religious leaders were doing it. The Romans were horrific. Their entire culture was based on that. Enslaving people, crushing people, and lording it over them. That was the way Caesar was. You know, he was to be worshipped as a god. So to have this figure show up that says not only am I not going to do that I'm going to be a slave which in those days you know that would have been menial tasks and you think about it Jesus did do one of the most humiliating and meaningful things for all of us he went to a Roman cross and they would not crucify Roman people in those days they wouldn't crucify a Roman citizen Crucifixion was for slaves and criminals. So he took the most low position. He was also a humble carpenter and a lay person. So the point is that, you know, I know that our culture, we have a certain view of work. You know, you have to do certain types of work to have value. Um, I think one of the areas where we don't value a lot, though, is any kind of menial work or labor cleaning, hard labor, but God always has infused meaning into that. So it's one of the things we can do. You, know, you hear this in the church, you know, it's not always fun, but I'm going to, uh, you, you might fast for somebody, you, you can do something spiritual for them, but you can do some, you know, you can exercise for someone. That's that's my that's my hard labor, right? But it could be something else. It could be washing something that you don't want to wash, doing something that is associated with something that we typically would want somebody to do for us. Particularly in, in North Atlanta, you know, where we have some resources. But those menial tasks can all of a sudden be infused with meaning and value. We can offer it for others. And then we can also help people that have jobs, maybe because of a disability or whatever. They're not able to do any other job like that. Or youth, our young people, who I think should have those jobs, because, you know, my sister had it. I didn't have to have a job like that. Because <laughs> I was a highly favored child, right? So, but no. Uh, they had these, uh, you know, work at Chick-fil-A, whatever it is. And I, I think those are great for young folks to do that. And then we can teach them there's real value to what they're doing. And there's value to us when we make our beds or clean our rooms or do the things that the mother, I know many mothers here, the things you do that can just be annoying. You know, oh, I told him not to put this here and he's done it again. You know, that kind of thing is that all those things can be brought up into suffering because a lot of times what we do with that is we think well that's just a little sacrifice it doesn't make anything but every little sacrifice every little suffering mundane monotony boredom can be infused into this idea of redemptive suffering 
and can be brought up. And then if we have something where we are doing something, you know, you have a family with a lot of kids and you're always doing this work, um, this kind of thing, you, you see the meaning in it. Not just the love that your kids have, hopefully the appreciation they have, but um, there's so much meaning in, in doing those types of things because of what Christ has done. So just to finish the psalm, going back to the psalm, why do they choose this psalm? There's a lot to it, but just one verse is to deliver them from death and preserve them in spite of famine. I love that, that verse. In other words, this psalm is all about deliverance. But that, that this person who wrote the psalm was absolutely confident in God. They weren't going to take the situation into their own hands. They weren't going to just lay there and do nothing, but they were going to trust in God and be obedient to God and know that he would deliver them and that he would bring good out of their suffering. So it's that confident mindset that we're to bring into all our trials uh, and our, our tri tribulations. Um, and so that's kind of, I know I went over, I'm sorry. I'll just give you two resources that I would... Um, but that gives you a kind of a sense of, of maybe how to approach the readings as you go to worship. Um, these are just some resources that I recommend. Um, this is a, a beautiful uh, a commentary series, and it's written not with all the historical critical stuff, so it's very easy to read. It's, it's all about edification and you know growing closer to Jesus and really understanding what's the best interpretation of these gospels uh, in church history. And this is one of my favorite. It's by this wonderful scholar named Dr. Mary Healy. And this is on Mark. So it's, um, but they're all about this size and they're the whole New Testament. And they're not that much. You can get them on like Amazon. But they all look like this. It's the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scripture. So that's one uh, resource. And then just two more. One, two online and this one I want to mention. I wish I had the cover for this. This is a Catholic introduction to the Old Testament. That's what it's called. A Catholic introduction to the Old Testament. And it's written by one of my, my professor, my old professor, whose name is Dr. Grant Petrie. If you ever hear my homilies, I, I talk about him all the time. In fact, i got to be honest, most of the talk <laughs> was inspired by the stuff he said, right? Because he's a great scholar. You know? And there's another guy, though, I use named John Bergsma, Dr. John. So they both wrote this. And they purposely wrote it so that an average person like yourself, like me, could go and just look up stuff. And so there is some technical stuff in there, but it really helps you. And then they have little um, parts of the lectionary in the Old Testament and how it points forward to Christ in the New Testament. So it's it, all the tradition too. like what did what did Augustine say about this text or Jerome or different place? So it's it's I think it's 30 or 40 bucks, but it's great. To learn the Bible with. And then um, two online. Boy, I've really gone over. I'm sorry. Two online and I'm done. I promise. Um, one is, uh, it's called Catholic Productions. Now this one is cost you a little bit, but it's not much. It's like $13 a month. Y'all might already know about this, but um, it, it, I think it's one of the best things out there. And it's a guy named Dr. Bram Petrie, who's my former uh, uh, teacher. And uh, he, it, it, so and I was, I would joke with him too. I'd be like, "Can I get this for free?" <laughs> and he would just look at me because he's got five kids. He's like, "Yeah, right. What you're going to pay for it?" So anyway, it's only like thirteen a month, but he will give you an entire thirty-minute summary 
on all of what I just said and way more than what I said with catechism verses, scholar verses, quotes from saints, everything. For each week, for every week, the whole year, all the feasts, everything, plus a bunch of other stuff once you pay the $13.99. He actually gives you a little bit free to tease you, like five minutes, and then you realize, oh, I have to pay for the, I get the rest of it. So anyway, it's a little technique. And then there's one other thing. It's called the sacred page. Now, this is free, okay? And this is John Bergsma's, uh, Dr. John Bergsma's take on the readings. It's written. So the, the, the audio or the, the Catholic production is a podcast, but the, the one on Sacred Page is, is written. And if you go in there, if you, whoever is in charge of the email, I'll send you the link on how to do this. But you go in there and you have to go to the old page and you have to use a trick. You have to go back to 2018. And what you'll have is all the readings for that year. And he gives you the commentary. And he does a commentary on every reading um, and, and I'll end with the, the reading I didn't mention, the second reading. We can always know that God is with us in our suffering. Why? Because he literally came down to suffer with us and to redeem our suffering. So he sympathizes with you. And it says he was tested in every way. So he knows what suffering is truly like. In the most profound form. And he beat it. He overcame it. So he's the perfect one to look to in any form of suffering. So God bless you all. Thank you for having me. Sorry I kept you 15 minutes.